A little girl was asked after Christmas by one of her friends, she said, well, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? And the little girl said, no, but then again, it's not my birthday. She had it in the right perspective. She knew that it was Jesus' birthday. And that is why on days such as this, we have you turn to a passage like Matthew or Luke, where we read a portion of the Christmas story so that we might be reminded and refocused on the whole reason that we gather together and celebrate this birth of Jesus Christ. Well, I've had you turn to Matthew chapter 1, and it begins by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we want to read the first 17 verses of this passage. And as you're looking at it, you're thinking, Oh, goodness, look at those names there. You probably have never heard a sermon on the first 17 verses of Matthew. Certainly you don't have a Christmas card in your home that has these first 17 verses. It's probably not your life verse or some of your most often quoted verses. You never see someone saying, you know, my life verse is Matthew chapter 1 verse 6. That so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so. You don't read these at Christmas pageants or at performances. And I admit to you, when I used to read the Gospel of Matthew, I began over at verse 18, which says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And it's understandable because the names are tough. Just to pronounce them are hard. And unless you're looking for some new creative name for your next child, you probably skip this altogether. I certainly did. Until I recognized something, I thought, you know, God spent 17 verses of his word in the genealogy. And if he spent 17 verses, he must have something for us, some lesson. He doesn't do things for no good reason. Uh, Think of the whole book of 2 John has 13 verses. And this genealogy has 17 verses. Let's just read it. See if we can get through it, and then we'll comment on it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez. Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon caught a salmon. I mean, begot salmon. (laughs) Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Aren't you getting blessed by now? (laughs) Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. There's a new name for you. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. 
Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Methan. Methan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The verses that I just read, although tough to get through, are as inspired and as necessary as John 3.16. And since all scripture is inspired by God, God has a reason for these. And that simply is, this is the ancestry of Jesus. This is his family tree. This is his family album, if you will. We have his family tree all the way beginning in this genealogy with Abraham. As you have read this with me, probably you have noticed some names in the ancestry of Christ that would surprise and maybe even shock you to find that certain persons as such would be listed in the genealogy of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Notorious names, cheats, adulterers, and we're going to cover some of them today. You know, I bet that every one of you has a certain relative, at least one in your family, that you probably don't talk about much. If you open up the family album, you have very few pictures of that person because he's like the black sheep of the family. Oh, yeah, Uncle Horace. Always comes to the parties drunk. Always has some new gal with him. We don't talk much about Horace. We don't talk much about so-and-so, that's the black sheep. Jesus has a bunch of them. But what's interesting is that they're all listed because they were all truthfully his ancestors. We should probably begin today by asking the question, why begin the story of the Savior with the genealogy? Why didn't Matthew just begin it in verse 18? Now, this is the way Jesus was born. Why start off with the list of names? Because to the Jews... A pedigree was of top priority. To prove who you are and where you came from was of utmost importance. First of all, you couldn't buy a house unless you could prove your genealogy. Because the sale of land was within the tribe itself. You couldn't buy land in another tribe. Thus, when you bought a home or a piece of property, you had to prove your list of ancestors. So it was important. If you were a priest, you had to prove your ancestry. Because what tribe were the priests from? The Levites. You had to prove that you were a Levite. Remember in the book of Ezra, Ezra who was a priest and a scribe, when he reorganized the priesthood, kicked out an entire group of men as defiled because they could not produce their genealogy that they were in the priesthood. But more important than that, It was the most natural way to begin the story of a man's life, and to the Jews, the most interesting is to begin by their genealogy, especially when you make the kind of claims Jesus made. You see, somebody comes along and says, I'm the Messiah. I'm your king. They're going to say, prove it, buddy. Who was your dad? Do you go back to David the king and Abraham, where all the promises came from? And so, by the genealogy, you'd be able to prove, was he in the messianic line? A few years ago, somebody came up to me and said that he was Jesus. I'm the Christ. I've come again. I looked at him and I said, I'm disappointed. It's not what I expected. And then I said, where were you born? 
Were you born in Bethlehem? Milwaukee. Well, I'm sorry. You're not my Messiah. Were you of the lineage of David? What tribe are you from? Well, I'm not Jewish. I'm sorry. You're not the son of God, the Messiah. Because he has a provable genealogical record that shows that he is the fulfillment of all of these promises. But what I'd like you to notice is that for 17 verses, Matthew begins his story with a historical account, a historical document of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I bring that to your attention because perhaps you have noticed some of the cover articles of the major magazines the last couple weeks. I was going through the airport the other day and I noticed Life Magazine cover article, Who is God? Then that's interesting for Life Magazine to put that out, especially Christmas time. Filled with all of the opinions that men have of who Jesus and who God is. Very subjective. Then U.S. News and World Report sports their cover article, Who Wrote the Bible? Interesting, again, at the Christmas season, both cover articles. A few years ago, Newsweek had a cover article attacking the historicity of the Bible, attacking the historical Jesus, saying there's little evidence, if any, that Jesus historically existed. Reminds me of a story of an old country preacher who was riding on a train, and he was eating fish. It happened to be New England cod filled with bones. And an atheist was sitting next to him. Noticed that the man was a preacher because he was reading the Bible. And so the atheist thought, hot diggity dog, I'm going to fry this preacher. And so he started spouting off all of the supposed contradictions that he knew about in the Bible, one after the other, but that old parson just kept eating, wouldn't respond to one of them. Until he had finished his meal, and the atheist said, well, what are you going to do about these things? What will you do with all of these contradictions I've just brought out in the Bible? The pastor wiped his mouth off and pushed his plate aside. He said, I will do with those contradictions what I am doing with this fish. I will eat the meat and put the bones aside for some fool to choke on. (laughs) You look at the way the Bible begins in the New Testament. It begins with a historical record. And we have four eyewitness accounts of the life, birth, genealogy, death, and impact of Jesus Christ upon history. These are not the subjective emotional dream of some person who wanted to make this beautiful story about Jesus. These are historical documents. And it begins by a tracing, a genealogy, all the way back to Abraham in these verses. And, by the way, the birth of Jesus Christ is the focal point of all history. You cannot sign a check and make that a valid check unless you write the date on it. You have to have a written testimony of the birth of Jesus Christ on every check and every legal document. December 22nd, December 23rd, 1990. That's the focal point of history. The birth of Jesus Christ divided the calendar from B.C. to Anno Domini, A.D., the year of our Lord. People number their years according to the birth of Jesus Christ because he had the greatest impact upon history. He was a historical figure. And we have a historical document laid out. Now notice in verse 17 how this genealogy is laid out in three sections. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. That's the first division. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. That's the second division. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. That's the third division. Three great divisions of Jewish history. The first one include Abraham and David. And they're listed because of the promises given to them. God said to Abraham, through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. A prediction of Jesus. Jesus was the greatest gift and the greatest blessing, and it came through the line of Abraham. Then God made a promise to David. David, through your offspring, one will rule over all of the kingdom of David as well as the world. God made promises to them. The second is from David to the exile into Babylon. And then finally, from the exile to Christ. Now, as I read verse 17, you go from Abraham all the way to Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus came in the nick of time. Because verse 17 is a depiction of Israel's spiritual history as well as physical history. God gave Abraham promises. And from that time, Israel fell into sin and backslid. And their world became so dark that they went into captivity, and even after the captivity, they were ruled by foreign oppressors. And finally Jesus came to set them free from real slavery, the slavery of sin. And that's a picture of humanity, by the way. If I were to paint a picture of the history of the world, I probably wouldn't win an award, first of all, but this is how I would do it. I would go to the store and buy the thickest, blackest, most opaque paint I could find, and I'd literally pour it over the canvas. I let it dry, I'd set it up on an easel, and that darkness represents the world. Then I would take the whitest, brightest paint I could find, and I'd start with a little ray of light in the corner, and I'd have little streams of light, brighter and brighter, emanating from that one point, going out into the darkness. That's a history of the world. The world was dark apart from Christ, and Christ entered the world, and the Bible says that in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. And it still doesn't understand it. It comprehended it not. In the beginning, when God created men, and God made covenants with them, took Abraham, took David, took the various men and women, man has never been able to do anything but go downward and proved all through history that they need a Savior. Man rebelled against God. We've turned God off. Years ago, there were kids at their school. They were having a little play. They dressed up as shepherds, had little staffs. They were portraying the manger scene. And instead of having a baby in the manger or a doll, as most plays have around Christmas time, they put a 60-watt light bulb underneath the hay to demonstrate how radiant Christ would be. And at a strategic point near the end of the play, the stagehand backstage was supposed to turn off all the lights and have that one 60-watt bulb shining to show that Christ is the one from whom all light of man flows. It's going to be a great crescendo. But he got confused and turned off all the lights. And it was a tense moment, especially up on stage. And one of the uh, shepherds in a loud stage whisper said, You switched Jesus off. (laughs) And everybody in the audience heard it. They thought it was cute. But 
It's true. That's exactly what the world does year after year after year. We switch Jesus off. Christmas has become happy holidays. People go to the mall and get Santa claustrophobia, just trying to find their way through the crowds. We've switched Jesus off and it's become just this busy, stress-filled time of buying gifts for one another. And we switch Jesus off. That's the history of the world. And Christ is the bottom line, you notice, in this genealogy. He is the last name mentioned because he's the one where life really begins. Throughout all the generations, they brought forth the light, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, there's a few important lessons, by the way, in this genealogy. I didn't read this list of names just to impress you that I could pronounce them, and I probably mispronounced half of them. But this is a powerful section of Scripture. Let me tell you something. The head of Campus Crusade for Christ, one of them, several years ago, was on a campus of a college and noticed that there was somebody reading a Bible. So he went up to him and he said, do you know what you're reading? And he said, no, I'm reading the genealogies in Matthew 1. I thought I would start in the New Testament and find out about the Bible. The director of Campus Crusade sat down with him and explained to him the genealogies, much as I have explained to you and will explain as we go on, and led that man to Christ and found out that the genealogy was a signature of God in the Scripture and it was there for a very important reason. The first lesson I notice is reading through this genealogy is that the promises of God are impeccable. And in other words, God keeps his promises. For it tells us the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what's he called? The son of David. He wasn't the son of David. But he was the ancestor of David, thus, according to a Jewish terminology, the son of David, and then the son of Abraham. And again, those two men are mentioned because God made promises to Abraham and God made promises to David. And this is simply saying, hey, God made a promise to these guys and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. God made a promise and he kept his promise. Now, what I'm about to say in the next few moments, I'd like you to listen to very closely and try to latch on to it. I don't want to lose you. I want to explain something to you because perhaps you have said, why are there two genealogies that seem to be contradictory? Matthew has a genealogy. Luke has a genealogy. It seems to be different names, although some of them are the same. And it appears as if they would be a contradiction. If you were a historian or a careful student of history or of the scripture, you would have gone through those already and find there is no contradiction at all. But in fact, the fulfillment of a promise of God. You notice that Matthew begins with Abraham, traces Jesus through David, and then finally on down to Jesus. And Matthew's gospel is the list of Joseph's ancestry. Joseph's background is in Matthew 1. The foster father or the legal father of Jesus. Not the literal father, but the foster father of Jesus. If you were to turn to Luke, and don't do it because right now it would be too confusing, but Luke records Mary's ancestry. Goes up through David, but all the way back to Adam. Matthew wanted to prove that Jesus occupied the royal lineage. 
and that he was legally in line of the Davidic throne to fulfill the promise God made to David. Luke wanted to show you that Jesus had the blood of David flowing through his veins because he was literally Mary's son and came out of Mary's body. Thus, Mary is traced in Luke all the way back to David and finally Adam to show that Jesus' bloodline came from her. You look at that and you say, well, that's really interesting, Skip. So what? Well, the so what is that, again, if you're a careful student of history, you know that there is a big problem God got himself into. Because though God made a promise that there would be a lineage from King David, and one of those descendants would be the Messiah, eventually, who would reign over the earth, that God got himself into a problem because he made a promise to one of those descendants. One of the kings that came from David was a man by the name of Jeconiah who was El Cripo Numero Uno. He sinned so much that God made a promise to him that his descendants would be cut off. This is how the promise goes in Jeremiah. Record this man, Jeconiah, as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit upon the throne of David, nor rule in Judah anymore. Well, that's true. That happened. After Jeconiah, there were no more descendants. His sons did not occupy the throne. His uncle did, and he was taken captive. And since that time, no one has sat upon the throne. The nation was taken captive. The royal lineage was cursed in its bloodline. And yet we have now a contradiction. God promised a lineage to David and the offspring forever, and yet we have Jeconiah who broke it. And a blood curse was put upon him. How could two of those things be fulfilled? Messiah had to come through David's line. And thus he had to come through Jeconiah's line. That's why you have two genealogies. Joseph is the descendant of Jeconiah whose bloodline is cursed. But that's okay. Because Joseph was not the literal father of Jesus. But the foster father. But because he was the foster father, Jesus would have legal rights in Jewish thinking to the throne of David. But what about the bloodline? It's cursed. Ah, that's the beauty of it. We go to Luke's genealogy. And we have Jesus, who came from Mary. And we have the list of Joseph's father-in-law, or Mary's father, and all the way up to David. But the bloodline of Mary doesn't go through Jeconiah, doesn't go through Solomon, goes through the son of David named Nathan. So the blood curse is not upon Jesus. He has legal right to the throne, but he also has the blood of David flowing in his body. So God could curse Jeconiah, but get around his own curse by having Jesus born of a virgin. And the reason there's two genealogies is that you might know that God keeps all of his promises even though people blow it and mess up and God has to judge and punish some. The promises of God are impeccable. God's faithful to his word. Somebody counted the promises of God in the Bible, came up with 8,810. I couldn't tell you if it's accurate. I haven't counted them. Another person said, no, there are 30,000 promises in the Bible. I know this, the Bible says there are exceedingly great and precious promises and every one of them that God has made to you, he's going to keep. You worried about your wife? You worried about your children? You worried about your salvation? Don't trust the Lord. 
turn your life and those troubles over to Him. You can trust Him. He'll keep His word. He'll be faithful. Which is more than I can say for people. People are fallible. God is infallible. Man might have good intentions, but would fall short in the promises that He makes. But God will be faithful. Great is your faithfulness, the Scripture says. He'll keep His promises, which is a comfort to some and a terror to others. Because Jesus said, and if I go, I will come again. Oh, that's a comfort if you're a Christian. But He made other promises like, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. That's ever bit as much of a promise. And so, if you're not a Christian, the promises are a terror, but He'll keep them. If you are a Christian, his promises are wonderful. just depends what side of the fence you're on. So first lesson, the promises of God are impeccable. Now I want you to look at some of the names in this chapter, just a little closely with me. And you'll notice that the second lesson is a personal relationship with God is individual. In other words, salvation is not passed down from generation to generation. I cannot give salvation to my son. I can... Live an example before him, and I should. I can pray for him every night, and I should. I should be on my knees, and you should be on your knees for your children, that they would know Jesus Christ as the number one priority of their lives. But that relationship must be personally received. You can't give it to them. God has no grandchildren, only children. Every person must personally ask Jesus to be their Savior. You can't say, well... My dad was a good person. My parents were good Christians. So what? What about you? I want you to notice a couple verses with me. Look at verse 7. We have the name Solomon that first appears in that verse. It says that he begot Rehoboam. Now there's a good example right there. Solomon, at least at first, was a wise man, a God-fearing man, loved the Lord. Wrote the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon spoke about the wisdom of God, and then he had a son like Rehoboam, who never lived up to any of that wisdom, who didn't listen to wisdom, never listened to the older men giving him advice, just the young whippersnappers in the kingdom. And the kingdom was divided. Now look down at verse 8. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Jehoram, or in this translation, Joram. Jehoshaphat was godly. He brought revival and spiritual reform. But his son Jehoram turned from God and worshipped idols. Look at verse 10. We have the name Hezekiah, one of the best kings Judah ever had. Was a man of prayer. Look at his son, Manasseh. Oh, Manasseh was probably the wickedest, wickedest king of all. He put images of Baal and false idols within the temple itself. He turned the whole nation away from God for 55 years, took his own son and burned him in a fire for a sacrifice, took all of the copies of the Bible in his kingdom and burned them, and turned the nation away from God. Look at verse 11. The name Josiah appears, who sought God when he was 16 years old, rebuilt the temple when he was 26 years old, but look at his son, Jeconiah, the one that God cursed the bloodline through. My point, all of them had pious dads, and all of them were wicked. Grace doesn't run in the family. 
You cannot rely upon the relationship your mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather, uncle, or aunt has with the Lord. You must have it on your own. And that's why, parents, we need to be on our guards and watch our children as they develop and pray to the Lord daily for the outcome of their lives. And not rely upon the prayer of a baby dedication or upon the Sunday school, but upon training them ourselves and praying for their salvation as they grow older. For Jesus said, to all who received him, to all who received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Who were not born of natural descent, that's spiritually, nor of human descent, nor of a husband's will, but they were born of God. So, first of all, the promises of God are impeccable. A personal relationship with God is individual. And finally, the pity of God is inexhaustible. There's one thing this list of names shows me, is that God has lots of grace. That God is this big when it comes to compassion. Because of the kind of people that he lists in this record, not the kind of people I'd like to say were my relatives. I wouldn't like to own any of them, frankly. And if I were writing my own genealogy and I had a list of these characters, I would like to just not mention them at all. To say, oh, we have a lot of people in our family. No need to get into personal details. After all, what's important is that we got here. But Jesus lists them all to show that no one is beyond God's reach. We list Jacob who is a conniver. We list Judah in this genealogy, who is a womanizer. King David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. If you look really closely at some of these names, you'll notice that it lists four women. You say, so what? Well, the so what is, that's not normal. Jewish genealogies never mentioned women. It was taboo. You never even say who your mother or grandmother is when you have an official legal document like that. It was not normal, taboo completely. Because, face the facts, old Jewish tradition did not place a high priority on women. Women had no legal rights. Women were owned by either their dad or their husbands. Every pious Jewish Pharisee would wake up every morning, bow his head and say, Oh God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile a slave, or a woman. You've come a long way, baby. You have come a long way. I bring that out because I hear God accused all the time of being a chauvinist and the Bible as being sexist. Somebody told me the other day that at a wedding recently that we conducted, that one of the people in the... uh, Audience, they said, well, how'd you like the wedding? I said, well, you know, that pastor, he certainly, certainly doesn't understand the sexes. Very sexist remark. The one that I made was Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit unto your husbands. I mean, those are fighting words these days. And she heard that and she thought, oh, I can't believe he said that. Listen. Jesus Christ is the greatest liberator of women the world has ever seen. Because before before Jesus came on the scene, women had no rights. They were like slaves. They were owned. It was like property of. The Bible comes and it says in that beautiful writing of Ephesians, there is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. The barriers are knocked down. 
And here we see a glimmer of this in the genealogy where the women are included. Not only are women included, but notice the kind of women are included. Four of them, and I'd like you to look at them. Verse 3, the name Tamar appears. Why on earth would you put her in your record? You know, Tamar had two husbands. Both were struck dead by God. Would you want to marry a woman like that? She decided she's not going to wait on God's will for a husband any longer. She dresses up as a whore, goes out on the street, and waits for her father-in-law, Judah, to come along and has incestual sexual relations with him and bears a child. That's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. The name Rahab appears. She was a Canaanite harlot. The one who lied when she hid the two spies at Jericho. Eventually, she turned to worship the only true God, but she didn't have a good reputation. Also in verse 5, the name Ruth appears. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She was a complete Gentile, not a Jewish person. The entire Moabite race was an abomination to the Jews because the Moabite race was a product of incest. Lot had two daughters. When he was leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, when God was post-toasting the city, they fled to a cave. And the two daughters, instead of trusting the Lord, obviously influenced by Sodom and Gomorrah, said, hey, listen, we're out here all alone in the desert in a cave. We don't have a husband. Chances are we're not going to have kids. we got to do something. Let's get dad drunk. Let's go in and have sexual relations with him. They did. The firstborn child was called Moab. The race was cursed. God said, no Moabite will enter into my assembly even up to the tenth generation. But lo and behold, God sent Boaz, who married Ruth, that Moabitess, and she became the grandmother of King David, redeemed by God's love out of the Old Testament to enter into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 6. It tells us, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who's that? That's Bathsheba. Remember, Bathsheba was the one who was bathing on the rooftop. And Mr. Lustful himself, King David, was out there looking at her. And as he saw her bathing, he thought, pretty good looking. And lusted after her in his heart. And took her, had relations with her, and she became pregnant. David didn't repent at that point. He decided, hey, she's pregnant, I better do something quick. I'll kill her husband. So he killed Uriah the Hittite. That child was born, and that child died. But the second born from Bathsheba was Solomon. And here she is included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now what a genealogy. Two harlots, a cursed Moabitess, and an adulteress. Plus people like Jacob, Judah, even King David. It's as if Matthew ransacked the Old Testament to find the absolute worst possible relatives of Jesus to include. But that's the whole point. No one is out of reach of God's love and mercy, His compassion. The pity of God is totally inexhaustible. Keep in mind the audience that would receive this document of Matthew is probably Jewish. Many of them self-righteous. Many of them like the Pharisees. What a slam to self-righteousness this genealogy would be. Oh, here you have a Moabitess. Here you have a Gentile, a harlot incestual relationship type people. God loved them. And that's the point Matthew was getting across. So no one could feel smug in his religion. 
Well, I'm a religious person. I'm a good Jewish person. So what? God was showing that he would save anyone. You know, the book of Hebrews says he is able to save to the uttermost those that come to God through him. It's one of the best passages of Scripture there is. Save to the uttermost. One of the ancient preachers used to rephrase that and say God is able to save to the guttermost those that come to God. He's able to go down in the gutter no matter who you are and pick you up and include you in the life and in the glory of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at another verse. It's the last verse of the genealogy, verse 16. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Joshua. That's his Hebrew name, Yeshua. In Greek, Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And down in verse 21, the angel says, She will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was given a common name. When you hear the name Jesus today, chances are you think of only one Jesus. But we know there were at least five high priests named Jesus. Josephus tells us that he knew at least 20 people named Jesus. It was a very common name, like calling somebody Bill, Bob, George, Pete. Point is, Jesus never distanced himself in anything he ever did. He never gave himself a fancy name, like His Holiness, Dr. Reverend Jesus III. I can hear him say, just call me Jesus. Common name. Because he came as a common person. Though he was God, wrapped in a skin of flesh, no one ever would feel reluctant to approach him for fear of being rejected. And you read that all throughout the scripture. He didn't have a halo when he walked. He didn't glow in the dark. People could approach him. The Bible says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted and tested like we are, yet he was without sin. He can relate to you. He felt what you feel. He experienced what you experience. He came as a common person so that you could relate to him. But notice that his name means, for he will save his people from their sins, for that's exactly what he came to do. You know, I've noticed something about the world around Christmas time. The world will allow Jesus to be a baby in a manger, just as long as he stays there. Oh, we like the sentimental feelings when we see a Christmas card or a manger scene of those shepherds in this sanitary stable with this cooey, cuddly, little warm infant. Oh, little Jesus away in a manger. That's beautiful, isn't it? But just keep the child in the manger, all right? Don't let him grow up and challenge the high priest and the religious people and tell a person to repent and die on a cross for their sins. But that's what Jesus came to do. One of my favorite books is called God Came Near. And the author speaks about this. And I'd like you to listen carefully. It all happened in a moment. A most remarkable moment. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. 
God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him. And had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons, Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him, or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. And his head ached. To think of Jesus in such light, well, it's almost irreverent, it seems. It's not something that we like to do because it's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with the hammer. It's easier to stomach him that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of our world. For if only then, for if only we let him in, it is then can he pull us out. Boy, that's good. Jesus came not as the friend of religious people, but as the friend of sinners, the friend of the common person, the person who was very human, though very divine. And he came to save people from their sins. So take Jesus out of the manger and put him in your heart. For if you can't find Christmas in your heart, you'll never find it under a tree. Because the Spirit of God Jesus can live in your heart and change your life. That's what Christmas is all about. What do you give to a God who has everything? Your life. And just thank you, Lord, that you have given everything. You've given us the historical record of your son, but more than that, you've given us your son himself. And what lessons this genealogy teaches us, the promises of God are impeccable. The personal relationship with God is individual. And the pity of God is inexhaustible. It will reach out to anyone, no matter who. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the refreshment we have out of your word, these verses of the genealogy of your son, the family tree, the family album. Thank you for including all of those that we probably never would had you commissioned us to write this genealogy. 
Thank you, Lord, that you came to save sinners, not come to call the righteous. And so, Father, we repent of any of our religious schemes that would try to make us worthy. We rely upon your amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you that Jesus came to save us. And in this moment of quietness, if you haven't asked Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior, perhaps being a religious person or a churchgoer all your life, say, Jesus, come out of the manger and into my heart. Save me from my sins. I take you as my Lord and Savior. Cleanse me. And now commission me to do your will. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.